Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. I'm Liza Berger, editor of McKnight's Home Care. A recent federal report brought renewed attention to the 53 million people known as family caregivers. I recently talked to Jennifer Olson, CEO of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers, about this group, the Institute's belief in a new federal office, and why a collaboration between personal and paid caregivers is essential. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jennifer Olson. Thank you for having me. First, I'd just like to say that our thoughts are with President and Rosalind Carter. Jennifer, please tell us briefly about the mission and goals of the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers. We are a 35-year-old organization focused on the strength, health, and resilience of family caregivers. We define family caregivers as friends, family, or neighbors who are taking care of someone who is ill, aging, or disabled. And that care could be anything from what we would traditionally think, like um, medication management or bandage changes, through financial caregiving or housework and support in the home um, with chores. So a broad array of activities and a broad array of people. Um, but our and our focus is keeping those caregivers uh, healthy and well. It seems that the topic of family caregivers has finally gotten the spotlight, if you will, um, and the attention that you must feel that they've deserved all along. Does it feel this way to you that the profile of family caregivers has has risen in recent months? Yes, definitely. And Mrs. Carter, about a year and a half ago, called this out in a piece in the Hill where she spoke about uh, that we have this moment, that we have to seize this moment of awareness about the caregiver population amongst us, right? That COVID helped to shine a light on this population that is often an invisible part of our healthcare system and our communities. And our job right now is to keep that light shining bright and to move towards impactful change uh, so that caregivers don't end up invisible or in the shadows again. Tell us a little bit more about how COVID helped to shine this light um, and propel this new interest and understanding of family caregivers. I think it happened through a few different sectors. The first is um, when you think about employers, when many people transition to telework or some form of partial telework, uh, it became incredibly visible, uh, the care that happens, because people would have a, a family member behind them on camera or have to you know, make a trip to go pick up a prescription in ways that was uh, kind of unspoken or not part of our conversation. So I think employers now see and recognize um, a lot more of the care experience. Um, and so there's an opportunity there to use this uh, moment for change in uh, workplace policies and practice. I think the policymakers um, have seen both in their own experience and their own families, but also uh, the stories that have been told through media about um, the roles that family members have played caring for loved ones who maybe um, would have gone into the hospital, but you know, the hospitals were full or uh, maybe would have gone to a rehab facility, but instead decided to transition back to a family member's or a friend's house. In all of those circumstances, uh, it was just made visible kind of this 
um, community of people that are supporting and a partner to healthcare and the healthcare system as we know it. Um, and, you know, Mrs. Carter has a famous quote that there are only four kinds of people in the world, those who have been caregivers, those who are caregivers, those who will be caregivers, and those who will need caregivers. And I think while that quote was um, is obviously true um, and was before the pandemic, so many individuals that I talk to now uh, have experienced at least one or two of those uh, life journeys, right? They've, they've been in a caregiver role or they can tell you the story of someone close to them in that role uh, and, they, and they recognize uh, the challenges and burdens that that has presented. One of the biggest pieces of news in the last year for your organization, obviously, was the release of the national strategy to support family caregivers. What did you think when this strategy came out and was your organization instrumental in, in the crafting of it in any way? You know, I think our organization, along with about a dozen other caregiver uh, organizations, have been participating in advisory councils and listening sessions, um, submitting research to be included, making presentations to uh, the Federal Advisory Committee. So um, it was definitely a shared effort amongst the small but mighty caregiver advocacy community. You know, I think it's great to see that we have a first national strategy for uh, 53 million plus Americans who are serving in this role. Uh, now is the more challenging part. We have to move from having a strategy to action. And we at the Institute have been calling out the fact that there is, while the strategy exists and it has a number of um, action items, let's say, and there are over 400 for the federal government agencies, there is not uh, either kind of clear authority or budget for these actions to happen. And so we're calling for a, an office of caregiver health to be the central focus for making this strategy move from paper to reality. Tell us a little bit more about what you envision this Office of Caregiver Health doing, where would it reside, and what would its purpose be? I think there's kind of a few key elements. The first is that we see a need for, as I mentioned, leadership around this strategy, that it uh, would require kind of coordination amongst federal agencies, not just in the kind of traditional health space, but, you know, Department of Labor, Veterans Affairs, all of those uh, elements of the government working together to support caregivers, as well as looking to the federal government looking themselves internally to say how they're supporting uh, caregivers in their workforce. Um, because our research shows that one in five full-time employees is also serving in a family caregiver role. So the first is that leadership element. The second is a place for uh, coordination of some of the ongoing research that happens. So let's take a moment and think about the National Institutes of Health who have numerous studies and research initiatives going on at any point in time which are split across diseases or conditions or body systems. Caregiver research, though, could happen in each of those elements of NIH. Instead of us having a coordinated, you know, federal research agenda for family caregivers to support that group of individuals. So 
the second, so first being leadership, second being coordination, and third uh, being what I consider kind of uh, caregiver engagement in new legislation or um, new um, authorities that are put in place by the government. An example right now is something like hospital at home. You know, we've seen uh, many moves towards increasing uh, hospital services or um, more in-depth supports for individuals happening in the house. And often those require a caregiver to have an active role. You know, how are caregivers being part of that conversation? So if um, a part of the federal government, let's say CMS puts out a new regulation, uh, this office would have a role in making sure that the caregiver experience and voice and um, the realities of what this means for the family member would be um, part of that conversation before that uh, regulation hits the book. If you don't mind, let's let's talk a little bit about hospital at home. Obviously, it's a very interesting part of the home care um, continuum at this point. It's not new, but it's, again, like family caregiving, it's become more of a um, high-profile issue um, as a result of the pandemic. Does the um, Institute have a position on hospital at home? Do you... Um, are you an advocate for it? Do you think that it raises challenges that the country needs to address? Um, do you feel that it's it's something that we need more work on before we kind of roll it out nationally? I think it's definitely something for which there are um, benefits and challenges. You know, we want to see more and more options uh, made available for people uh, and for families to uh, receive healthcare in the place and in the format that they wish. And at the same time, we recognize that um, often there is an expectation or um, <laughs> a requirement in some ways that there is an individual in in the home or able to come to a person's home to do what seem to be very challenging and complicated medical procedures. Um, you know, often there is, uh, there is need for training. There is an inconsistency in how um, family caregivers get trained for some of these procedures. There is inconsistency, as far as I can see, in buy-in by family members. You know, um, it's, it's one thing to say, yes, uh, I am the person who's going to be the emergency contact or I'm the person who's going to pick someone up from the hospital. Um, but am I able, ready, and committed to doing infusions three times a day for this person? Has anyone asked me that before they put this per my family member in the car? You know, that is the type of conversation we haven't seen happen yet. I think there's been um, kind of some initial conversations there, but, you know, that's the type of um, in-depth discussion that we would see it, like an Office of Caregiver Health leading. Um, or being part of leading uh, so that those issues can be discussed um, and pathways forward that support both the individual who's receiving care and the caregiver can be put in place. Very interesting. I want to pick up on another topic that you mentioned, which was funding. What kind of um, number or how much would need to be devoted and how would it be kind of designated for, for family caregiving if there was an Office of Caregiver Health? I see this um, office as being less of a budgetary uh, burden. You know, I think um, 
setting up such an office would be uh, small dollars um, in the, you know, less than $5 million. So in the federal government space, that's tiny. But what I see is actually the opportunity for when there are uh, federal dollars going to states, uh, communities, and organizations, that caregivers are an included population in those dollars. You know, that um, when there's a conversation about communities who are at risk or vulnerable communities, that family caregivers are uh, receiving part of that funding because we've made the case that they are a critical and vulnerable part of our population. So we're not suggesting that this needs to be a big uh, financial commitment as much as it would be um, a coordination and leadership commitment. Where do you see states going in terms of paying and training family caregiving? What is the status of this at this point? And where do you want it to grow in you know, the next five or 10 years? I think there are some states, uh, Washington State comes to mind, that's been doing some incredible work, not just in uh, paying and training family caregivers, but also evaluating the costs and impact of uh, that type of initiative. And so, you know, in our organization, we're looking to see more ways that other states can learn from or even model what is happening in a, in a place like Washington. I think the challenge, though, is that in so many of these conversations, uh, family caregivers don't have a very active voice in the conversations that are happening at state in state capitals. You know, we recently started a network of former and current family caregivers to even engage in those conversations at state capitals to be part of health and human services budgets in states to say point out what's happening in places like Washington or how Hawaii has a program that provides uh, stipend dollars for family caregivers to even raise this as a conversation. It still seems to be absent in most state legislative calendars. Mm -hmm. People listening to this call are owners and operators of personal care, um, home health, hospice uh, agencies. Why should professional caregiving firms take an interest in how family caregivers are treated and and what what is happening in, in their world? You know, one of the things that the Institute started back in the 90s was an effort called CareNets, which brought together professional uh, caregivers and family caregivers, um, some representatives who led local home care agencies and who ran uh, home care facilities or um, assisted living facilities because uh, we realized that it's so critical for there to be a, a kind of team and shared approach towards supporting uh, individuals who are ill, aging, or disabled. Uh, I think of it as, you know, neither side of this conversation, whether you're a family caregiver or in the paid care space, are really ever operating completely independently. Um, and so we see that it's critical for increased kind of collaboration and coordination amongst these two sides. You know, at the, um, that, that work started out in Georgia because we have so many rural communities, especially near where the Institute is based. And so uh, the conversations now about shortage of Healthcare workers and shortage of agencies is not new to some of my neighbors. You know, they've been 
making this case for decades, it seems. Um, and in all of that, we realize that it's critical for there to be uh, an increased understanding that uh, there is a care team that is supporting individuals um, going forward. But the other thing, which I think rarely gets talked about, is how many workers in home care agencies or in assisted living facilities are themselves also serving in the role of family caregiver. They are working a double, you know, leaving the assisted living facility and going home to the person in their family who they've been designated to be the caregiver for because they have those skills or they're good at it or they enjoy it or all of the above or none of the above. Um, whatever the reason is, there's still one in five full-time employees across all sectors who are going home to be a family caregiver. So um, I would encourage uh, anyone who owns one of these home care agencies or is managing a facility to recognize that they've got people effectively working a double. Um, and we should be thinking about how to support their needs um, in, their, in their family caregiver role. That is a really, really great point. If there was one or two things that uh, a company, big or small, um, an agency, big or small, can do to support these people who are working, like you say, double shifts, what would it be? I think a lot of um, what we're doing now is uh, we have an approach, an innovation lab approach where we're working with small and large employers um, who have employees similar to what uh, assisted living facilities would have, right? Location-based jobs. So uh, first I'm going to tell you, you know, the common things that you hear are flexible schedule and flexible location. And that doesn't work for mm -hmm. uh, the home health aide, right? Who has to be at a person's home at a certain time. Um, and so uh, we're working with um, these employers to figure out what are paths forward, what types of supports, whether that be um, increased uh, mental health support services, um, partnerships between, in some cases, you know, we're working with a restaurant chain, they're looking at partnering with a home health agency to say, maybe we, you know, we both need to figure out a way to work together because our workforce uh, has so many points of, of intersection and is dealing with challenges. Um, but we'd love to see some um, home health agencies or even uh, assisted living facility, maybe organizations join us in this innovation lab process because we know that they are uh, critical partners in solving this problem of supporting caregivers who have jobs that are neither location nor time flexible. Mm -hmm. In the little time that we have left, I just would like to talk to go back to the Institute and bring up a, a topic that's near and dear to you, and which is the Four Kinds Network. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. It's a network of caregivers, uh, past, current, and future, who are um, have two key roles that we are engaging people on. The first is to use their voice in serving as a champion or advocate for change. You know, I mentioned this large number of caregivers, 53 million, that was a pre-COVID number. Um, but how often do we actually hear a caregiver uh, issue discussion happening on the debate stages in a governor's race or a presidential uh, campaign. And so we are engaging caregivers to advocate for things like the Office of Caregiver Health or even some of the changes that could happen um, at the state level and uh, engaging caregivers in finding ways that they can support one another. Um, you know, it, it's one of the biggest challenges that caregivers face is a feeling of 
isolation uh, and peer support is something that we know would be valuable for caregivers if we could increase that. Uh, I especially think of former caregivers. They are incredible uh, individuals with a wealth of knowledge and a sense of understanding about the caregiver experience. Um, and many of those individuals, even some I hope listening today, are thinking, well, how can I help other caregivers? You know, my journey may have come to a close or may be different now than it was before. Uh, what can I do for others? I think the four kinds is the path for that because um, caregivers are amazingly generous in spirit. Uh, and so we want to give them another chance to help current caregivers. And that's what four kinds is all about. Terrific. Well, on that note, I'd like to say thank you so much, Jennifer, for joining us today. Jennifer is from the Rosalind Carter Institute for Caregivers. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com. Home care.